We've been going through an Old Testament uh, series on the names of God. And we began with the three foundational names of God. We started with Elohim, God as the creator God. And next we talked about God as Jehovah, which we argued is better translated Yahweh. God, the relational God, the God that wants to personally, intimately relate with his creation. And last week we talked about Adonai, God as owner, God as master. And I uh, shared with you that although I have known the names of God and what they mean over the years, I never fully appreciated the, the, um, the order and the manner in which God revealed his names. Because if God had revealed himself first off as owner and master, many of his creation, including you and I, would probably go, no, thank you. I don't need an owner. I don't need a boss. I don't need a dictator to tell me what to do. But God introduces himself in Genesis chapter 1 as Elohim, the creator God who always existed from eternity to eternity, who is self, uh, self-energizing and self-sufficient, is not in need of anyone else, any, anything else. And he moved from there to say, but yet I'm also a personal God that relates intimately and personally with my creation. And because of that, I want you to know I'm your creator, I'm your owner. And when you surrender your life to me, things go a lot better because I know, I, I know how you're wired. I have your best interest in mind. And I have sacrificially given myself in order to have that relationship with you. Today we get into the compound names of a God And each of those compound names begins with Jehovah, which arguably, as I said, should really be Yahweh. But throughout the series, I'm going to say Jehovah because you've always heard it as Jehovah. And so it it will be more memorable to you. But today, we're going to be talking about Jehovah Jireh, Jehovah Jireh and all that that means. Typically, as we said in Scripture, when God reveals himself to someone, he ties the name Jehovah to another name that says something deeper about himself. And we call these kind of compound names, and that's the case today, Jehovah Jireh. God uses them to reveal himself personally and to give people a greater revelation of his character uh, than even the personal name Jehovah communicates. And oddly enough, God often does this in really tough, challenging times. Um, We've talked about this before, but if I was to ask the majority of you some of the most meaningful experiences of God that you've ever had in your life, they would probably have to do with times of trial and times of suffering, where God became very real to you, very personal, where he was not the God of your parents or the God of your church, the God of your pastor, but your God, and you owned your faith in a very intimate way that you never had before. And that's usually a time also where God reveals himself to us. Sometimes God allows us to be in a situation that only he can solve so that when it is resolved, we know full well that it had everything to do with him and nothing to do with us. There's no argument there. I love what George Mueller, the great, uh, um, he, he was in charge of orphanages in the 1800s and just saw amazing miracles of God. And he said at one point in his ministry, there is no glory for God in what is humanly possible. Faith begins where man's power ends. Faith begins where our power ends. You know, so often we want to do it all ourselves, and then if we really get in a pinch, then God can step in and work a miracle or take over. But God is like, no, I want to be fully in charge all of the time, the good times and the bad times, and particularly the bad times because you will know full well that this only resolved and got better because I was a part of it. 
So Jehovah Jireh today means God is my provider. God is my provider. Uh, the last church I was at, uh, Alan is nodding his head because Pastor Leonard DeWitt wrote a book called Jehovah Jireh. And somebody joked with me this week, if you want to know everything there is to know about Jehovah Jireh, just read Leonard's book, which I wasn't able to do, but I, I hear it's a really good book. The root word for Jireh literally means to see, to see. Yet, when we put it together with Jehovah, the compound connection means to provide. And somewhere in the connection of these two names, there's a relationship between God seeing and God providing. That's really key, between God seeing and providing. We all know that to have vision is to see. To have vision is to see things. When I was reminded of one of my favorite Henry Ford quotes this week where he said, you know, vision is all about execution because vision without execution is just hallucination. You know, <laughs> and so many great leaders always have a vision, you know, and their staff and the rest of the people that have to make it happen are like, you're nuts. You know, like I can just dream things all day long, but it's another thing to execute it and make it happen. And God not only has the vision to foresee things and foresee needs, but he has the power to execute. And that execution is in his provision. And that's where these tie in today. So um, vision means to see, whereas provision means that something has been seen beforehand and thus provided for. And that's what we're saying about God. God sees us from all of eternity. He knows our needs. He knows our situation. We don't update him on that when we pray. He's already aware. And we'll talk about then what's the purpose of prayer. I'll talk about that a little bit later. Brittany touched upon that. Why do we just tell God things he already knows? That's a very good question. Vision means to see. Provision means to see beforehand or something to be provided for. So vision ties the provision to what is seen. God's provision for Abraham was based on his vision of what Abraham would do, on his obedience. God's vision led to his provision. And that's going to be really important today as we look at Genesis chapter 22. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there as I'm talking, or you can just listen as I read. But we will be in Genesis 22 today, uh, verses 1 to 19. <coughs> Excuse me. If you're new to the Bible, it's the first book of the Bible. So you just open to the front and go to the first book, Genesis chapter 19, verses 1 to 19. I'm sorry, 22. Yes, 1 to 19, chapter 22. Thank you, Joe. There's two ways we could go with today's sermon. When you're talking about God's provision, we can go the health, wealth, and prosperity route where God gives us everything we want. He's just the genie in the bottle. We call upon him, and he's just the great wish fulfiller. But if we've learned anything from Scripture, if we've learned anything from Jesus' ministry among his contemporaries of the first century, Jesus came to show us that our greatest need is salvation. Our greatest need is to be reconciled with God, to be restored back into right relationship with God the Father through the atoning sacrifice of Christ on the cross. There is no greater need than that. And spiritual peace with God leads to peace and, and victory in every other element of our life. The Jews of the day wanted deliverance from the Romans, their oppressors. They wanted to be, you know, they, they, they had gone through centuries of, you know, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, all of these other oppressors come and dominating them and ruling them and being their servants. And 
They look back to their time in Egypt and how God miraculously delivered them from the hand of Pharaoh. And they were looking for a Messiah who would do that exact same thing. And when Jesus came, they didn't receive him as Messiah because he didn't fit their expectations. He didn't fit their mold. All the way down to the last week of his life when he rides into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey on Palm Sunday declaring, I am the Lamb of God, choose me. Lamb Selection Day, Sunday, right after the Sabbath, the first day they could choose a sacrifice for Passover. And he comes in in grand fashion and says, I am the Lamb of God, slain for you, choose me. And they completely missed it. They completely missed it. But he came to show us, if anything, that our greatest need is for salvation and not necessarily physical deliverance. Genesis 22 tells the story of Abraham and Sarah and the way that God tested their faith in a, in a very extreme way. He asked Abraham to give up the one and only thing that he really had been looking for and longing for and loved more than anything else, which was his son Isaac. For years, Abraham and Sarah were barren, and God had made promises to them. In Genesis chapter 12, as we talked last week, God had said, I'm going to make a great nation out of you. And by the time of Genesis 15, 10 years had gone by. Abraham is now 100 years old and Sarah is 90. And Abraham says flat out to God, God, I appreciate your promises, but what good are they if I have no heir? Because how are you going to make me the father of many nations if I have no heir besides my servant? And we know all the trouble that that, that logic got him into. But God promises that he is indeed going to fulfill that promise. And he does. Miraculously, Sarah conceives and they, they have Isaac. And now God is seeming to be twisted and cruel in asking him to give up the fulfillment of that promise that they have longed for. It just seems like so contrary to God's nature. Abraham and Sarah not only loved Isaac, but they needed him for the fulfillment of that promise. God had promised to make Abraham into a great nation, and the fulfillment of that promise rested on this one and only son of Abraham and Sarah. If Isaac died without having any children of his own, then Abraham, already advanced in years, would no longer have a line through which God's promise of a future could come. That's the way they thought. I mean, what are the options? You've taken away all of our options. Why would you ask this? God did not seem to make any sense. What he was asking of them seemed to not only contradict his character and his nature, but the very promise that he had made. That's the context. Genesis 22. Listen as I read or follow along with me. I'm reading in the New Living Translation. Sometime later, God tested Abraham's faith. Abraham, God called. Yes, he replied, here I am. Take your son, your only son. Yes, Isaac, whom you love so much, and go to the land of Moriah. Go and sacrifice him as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I will show you. The next morning, Abraham got up early, and he saddled his donkey and took two of his servants with him, along with his son Isaac. Then he chopped wood for a fire for a burnt offering and set out for the place that God had told him about. On the third day of their journey, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. Stay here with the donkey, Abraham told the servants. The boy and I will travel a little farther. We will worship there, and then we will come right back. So Abraham placed the wood for the burnt offering on, his, on Isaac's shoulders while he himself carried the fire and the knife, and the two of them walked on together. Isaac turned to Abraham and said, Father, 
Yes, my son, Abraham replied. We have the fire and the wood, the boy said, but where is the sheep for the burnt offering? God will provide a sheep for the burnt offering, my son, Abraham answered. And they both walked on together. When they arrived at the place where God had told him to go, Abraham built an altar and arranged the wood on it. Then he tied his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. This is where Isaac is going. Something is horribly wrong here. Verse 10. And Abraham picked up the knife to kill his son as a sacrifice. And at that moment, the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham. Yes, Abraham replied, here I am. Don't lay a hand on the boy, the angel said. Do not hurt him in any way, for now I know that you truly fear God. You have not withheld from me even your son, your only son. Then Abraham looked up and saw a ram caught by its horns in a thicket. So he took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering in, in the place of his son. Verse 14, Abraham turned. Uh, Abraham named the place Yahweh Yerah, or Jehovah Jireh, which means the Lord will provide. To this day, people still use that name as a proverb. On the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. Then the angel of the Lord called again to Abraham from heaven. This is what the Lord says, Because you have obeyed me, and because you have not withheld even your son, your only son, I swear by my own name that I will certainly bless you. I will multiply your descendants beyond number, like the stars in the sky and the sand of the seashore. Your descendants will conquer the cities of their enemies, and through your descendants, all the nations of the earth will be blessed, all because you have obeyed me. Then they returned to the servants, just as Abraham had said, and traveled back to Beersheba, where Abraham continued to live. Powerful story. <clears throat> Not just a movie script, but historical fact. We believe what Scripture says. We believe that God... All that God records in Scripture are not just nice stories to teach us moral lessons, but that they, they literally happen. And the miraculous power of God is tied into these stories. So when we turn them into myths or just you know, stories that teach us lessons, we, I believe, rob God of his power. And so we believe this happened in that, uh, as Scripture goes on to say, Abraham believed God, and his faith was reckoned to him as righteousness. And we see even back in the Old Testament how faith led to righteousness. It wasn't by works. It was truly about faith all the time. But I want to share three key principles today that I believe really hold this story together and really teach us about how we can access the provision of God, not just in a genie-in-the-bottle sort of way, but in a, a real relationship where we have tough times in our life and we are just clinging on to God with all that we are. The first thing that I would suggest is that contradictions can cause us confusion and they can keep us from God. Contradictions can cause confusion in our life and they can ultimately keep us from God. How many times in your life have you gone through something where you're just like, wow, if God would allow this, then I'm not sure he's really a God that I want to love and serve and follow. And, and many people in the world the same way. They look at the evil in the world. They look at the things that they can't reconcile. And they say, how could a loving God allow this? If, if God is all loving, then he must not be all powerful. And if he's all powerful, then he must not be loving. I mean, how do you reconcile that? If he has the power to do anything he wants, why does he allow some of the things that he allows? And that keeps many people from the kingdom of God. That keeps many people from wanting and pursuing a relationship with God. 
Contradictions can cause great confusion, and they can keep us from God. First of all, Abraham's in a theological contradiction because God's instruction goes against his promise of a future nation. But it also goes against the sixth commandment, thou shalt not kill. You know, And here he's asking him to not just kill anybody, but his only begotten son. And it, it also makes no sense theologically because all of the surrounding nations engaged in child sacrifice. And God had repeatedly condemned that. And so why, God, are you asking us to do what the other nations do? What is abhorrent to you? That is so against who you are, so against your word and your character. I can't understand that. And I, I was sharing with staff and friends this week that I would have failed this test personally. I don't know about you, but unless I had heard the audible voice of God, I would have thought, I am senile, I am out of my mind, there is no way God would ask me to do this. I mean, that's me. I mean, I would have completely missed this miracle because I would have been like, sorry, you're not the God I know. Not because of my desires, but because of God's word and being consistent with that. Additionally, when the angel in verse 12 Granted, this is the angel of God and not God himself. But when the angel of God in verse 12 says, Now I know that you fear God, you're thinking, well, God already knew that ahead of time. If God is omniscient and knows all things, if he knows the beginning from the end, then he doesn't need to go through this to find out how Abraham's going to respond. He already knows. But Tony Evans in his book on the names of God was bringing up a, a, a brilliant point this week that there is a huge difference between intellectual knowledge and experiential knowledge. And I am guilty of this, and maybe you are as well, that oftentimes intellectual knowledge trumps everything else. And the point is that God has intellectual knowledge of everything, but he doesn't have experiential knowledge of certain things. Like God does not have experiential knowledge of how it feels to sin, because he's never sinned. And we could go on and think of other things that God doesn't have experiential knowledge of. And all of this leads to the, the fact that although God knows the beginning from the end, although he knows everything about us, God is eternally present, as we've been reading and learning. God is eternally present, and he participates relationally with us. And so it's like your spouse may know that you love them, but when's the last time you verbalized that and said that or done something that showed them? Because in that moment, when you express those words or when you show them through a great act of kindness, there is an experience there that deepens your relationship far beyond the intellectual knowledge of, well, I know they love me. They pledged their life to me, you know, until death do us part. When woohoo, that's exciting, you know. If it's not followed up by daily, constant acts of, of love and thoughtfulness. And so... What a cool picture of God here who's not just receiving from us what he already knows, like prayer is us spitting back words to him and going, him going, yeah, 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 tell me, tell me, yeah. But prayer is more like Psalm 27, verse 5, which, you know, um, that song we just sang, you know, your goodness is running after me and, and, and experiencing the goodness of God. And I love how in Psalm 27, verse 5, New Living Translation, David says, my heart has heard you say, come and talk with me. And Lord, I'm coming, I'm coming. Like that's the nature of a beautiful, intimate relationship with God, that our heart is connected with him, and we hear him bidding us to come, to approach his throne. 
And we're saying, I'm coming, I'm coming. Nothing else is important. It's just running after you, chasing after you. And so we get this picture of God actively, presently participating in our worship. As we're worshiping, he is engaged in that and enjoying that and, and in that with us. And in our obedience, or in our acts of obedience, he may know that we're going to respond a certain way. I mean, he does, but the experience of that obedience is something that causes him great pleasure and joy. In the same way that you've trained up children to, to love the Lord and honor him and, and hold up the family name and a number of other things, and when they actually do that in public, you're like, way to go. Awesome. That's the way we raised you. That, that's beautiful. That's the best. That's as good as it gets right there. And I think God does the same thing, like, great job, my son. Great job, my daughter. And so there's that experiential knowledge, which is so much more powerful than just intellectual knowledge. When God says in Psalm 22:3, the Lord God inhabits the praise of his people. He's, he's enthroned upon the praises of Israel. He dwells in the midst of praise. It means he is actively present and participating in our praise. And so... Yes, God is with us all the time as believers with the Holy Spirit living inside of us, but when we gather corporately and we lift up his name, there's something powerful, something ta tangible about worship that is just incredible. Well, Abraham's not only going through a theological contradiction, he's going through an emotional contradiction as his faith collides with his affections. How so many times the things that we believe, the principles, the convictions that we have, they run face to face with our affections in our relationships. He's in a social contradiction because he will never become a great name in his community if he kills his son. There goes his chances of being revered in his community as the, as the father of many people. He's in a relational contradiction because sacrificing Isaac would cause unbearable conflict and grief in his marriage. And it's interesting to note that we, we never see in the passage any conversation going on between Abraham and Sarah. And I doubt it ever happened because, you know, Sarah would be like, are you kidding me? We've waited so long for this, and you're going to kill him now? You think God told you that? You're a, you're a senile old man. Like, go take a nap. Like, this is, this is crazy. Like, it would have never flown. It would have never flown. Many times our circumstances cause us to miss what God is doing. And like I said, I'm the first to say, I would have missed this because I would have lacked the faith unless God verbally kind of like shook me and said, this is me, listen. <laughs> and the point is, we all go through times of suffering, and we can either gripe and grumble, as we're so prone to do, or we can, we can take great comfort in knowing that every trial, every challenge, every hardship that we go through is first passed through the filter of our Father. You call it the Father filter, call it whatever you want. That a loving God who, who created us, knows us, loves us, does not allow anything in our human experience without first going through the filter of his um, allowing it. Nothing comes our way without God first divinely approving it. It doesn't mean that all that happens in our world is God's will, but if something happens, God has allowed it. And if he approves it, if he allows it, it's because he has a divine purpose for it. So when we go through these crazy times, we can either get angry at God and say, what gives? Why are you allowing this? Or we could say, wow, something amazing is about to happen. And if I just hold on, if I just hang in there, 
I'm going to see God in a way I've never seen him before. And, and the older I get, the wiser I get, the more mature I get spiritually, that's exciting. That's really exciting. Nothing comes our way without God first divinely approving it. The principle and the lesson here is that God is often nearest when he seems furthest away. God is often nearest when he seems furthest away. And in this situation, only Abraham's faith would carry him through. Unfortunately, as I said, we often miss the purpose of the trial and the test because we're so fixated on the circumstances. We get so blinded by the circumstances in front of us. Why would God allow this? This makes no sense. This seems pure evil. This seems like God is messing with me. And we miss, we miss the bigger picture. Abraham faced a choice between the blessing and the blesser. God wanted to see which one he would choose. Isaac had been Abraham's blessing, but God wanted to know which uh, meant more to him, God or Isaac, the giver of the blessing or the blessing itself. Sometimes we can fall so in love with a blessing that it trumps the one who blessed us. And that's why James reminds us in chapter 1, verse 17, God is the giver of every good and perfect gift. He's the father of lights that everything comes down from. It all originates with him. Paul says in Romans chapter 1 that in the end times, we, they, the end times will be marked by people who worship the creation rather than the creator. They get all messed up. They forget the one who made it all happen, the one who's in charge of it all, the one who sustains it all and energizes it all. And they start worshiping the creation. The second thing, convictions equip us to navigate times of crisis. Convictions equip us to navigate times of crisis. When I was growing up, I distinctly remember a dating seminar where the speaker said, you've got to pre-decide your decisions. You have to pre-decide ahead of time what kind of person you're going to be, what kind of morality, character you're going to have. Because if you're on a date and you're in a, a, you know, an intimate situation, that is not the time to determine what's important to be. How far am I going to go? What are my limits? You, know? you have to know that ahead of time. And that's true of so many things spiritually and theologically, that we, we know God through his word, and we are convinced of certain principles and certain standards because of his word. Someone said, you're not made in a crisis, you're revealed in a crisis. And that's true of our convictions. Crises, crises can form convictions, to some, but they really are more about revealing the convictions that we already have. And that's why it's so important to be students of God's word and to know his word and know his character and his nature and truths about him before we go into tough times. One of Abraham's convictions is in verse 8, God will provide a lamb for himself. I'm sure he had no idea the magnitude of what he was saying. Yes, he would provide a ram in the thicket, and yet he would also use this to foreshadow God himself giving his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. Joe is pointing out in our men's Bible study Friday morning that this is precisely God saying, no, I am not like all of the other gods of all of the other nations because I am the one who provides the sacrifice. I am not going to ask you to give your own child. That's warped and twisted, and I will provide the sacrifice. I will give my one and only son who will 
unlike Isaac, who was going not knowing what was going on, Jesus willfully, voluntarily went to the cross. He was not duped into that in obedience to God the Father. He, in the form of God, not regarding equality with God as a thing to be grasped, Philippians 2, submitted himself in obedience even to the point of death. And that's why Philippians 2 says, therefore, he was given the name that's above all names, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Powerful stuff. Convictions help us. They, they equip us to navigate times of crisis. Abraham's faith was his conviction that God would provide a lamb. Also, when he says in verse 5, we will worship and then return to you. Abraham didn't know how he was going to accomplish what God had asked him to do, but he knew that somehow God would provide and they would return because he, he didn't believe in a God that was really going to sacrifice his son. Although Hebrews tells us in chapter 11 that it was by faith that Abraham offered Isaac as a sacrifice when God was testing him. Abraham, who had received God's promises, was ready to sacrifice his only son, Isaac, even though God had told him, Isaac is the son through whom your descendants will be counted. Abraham reasoned that if Isaac died, God was able to bring him back to life again. And in a sense, Abraham did receive his son back from the dead. Abraham had never witnessed a resurrection in his lifetime, but he had witnessed a miraculous conception as he and Sarah gave birth to, to Isaac. And so Abraham took the faith that he had from the experience that he had with God, and he transferred that to the present situation. He said, I don't know what you're going to do here, but I know you're not without options. I know that you're able. I know that you're all-powerful. And that's the faith that he demonstrated. I love Hebrews 11.1, 1, the great verse that many of us know about faith. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Conviction can be also translated as evidence, the evidence of things not seen. But I, w I wanted to do a deep dive this week, and it was kind of fun to do this, because the literal Greek for conviction means to reprove or to rebuke. So faith is the rebuke of things not seen. And I thought, what a beautiful picture there, that our faith rebukes what in our human instinct we would say this is nuts like no faith rebukes that and says trust god he's going to do something here that is that goes beyond reason that goes beyond earthly explanations but he's going to come through and your faith is the key to that your faith is the key to trumping the circumstances and watching god do something powerful abraham trusted that even if God were to take Isaac's life, he could bring him back to life. He was not limited. The, the final thing here that I think this passage teaches us is that obedience is the pathway to provision. Obedience is the pathway to God's provision. Oswald Chambers once said, one step forward in obedience is worth years of studying about it. You can come to church every week and know everything there is to know about obedience, but what do you do when you leave here? Are you, are you obedient to the voice of God, to the word of God, day in and day out, moment by moment? That's what counts. David Platt said, Jesus has not just given us options to consider. He has given us commands to obey. 
What God says in his word is not, hey, here's a good thought. Try this. You know, as you're pursuing your best life now, do this. No, these are not options to consider. These are commands to obey. Someone else said, great moves of God are usually preceded by simple acts of obedience. I love that. Great acts of God are usually preceded by simple acts of obedience. What a beautiful thought. Someone who was talking about this passage said, you know, three days is a long time to travel to worship. You know, ultimately, Abraham was going to this mountain to sacrifice. It was a, obedience is always worship. It isn't just singing songs and that good feeling we have. Obedience is the heart of worship. Abraham was traveling three days to worship. How many of us would go three days to worship? You know, that's commitment. People will want to give up on God because simply because life scenarios don't make sense could very well be walking away from new manifestations of God and his name in their lives. Powerful quote I read this week. So true. And I've already admitted that I'm one of those people that I would have walked away from seeing God in a powerful, deeper way for a lack of faith. You know, if God had asked me to sacrifice any of my three daughters, I probably, you know, would have really struggled with that unless he shook me and audibly spoke to me. I couldn't just hear a prompting in my spirit. I would think that was indigestion or me going nuts, you know, the wires crossed or something. Pastor and author John Stott once said, faith's function is to receive what grace offers. I love that. The function of faith is to receive what grace offers. Grace is a free gift. God wants to lavish his goodness upon us, but it takes faith and obedience is the pathway, the key to experiencing that in our lives. I love in verse 3 of our passage, it says, Abraham rose early. Abraham not only believed God and obeyed God, but he rose early. He didn't like procrastinate all day and then kind of like drag himself out of the house in the afternoon to get started. He rose early to do. He's like, God's told me to do this. I'm going to get on it right away. Somebody once said, delayed obedience is disobedience. Partial obedience is disobedience. Like, let's not fool ourselves. We either do what God says and we get on it or we make excuses and we justify. Loving God means acting on what he says. Many of us honestly don't know God as Jehovah Jireh, as provider in our lives because we haven't trusted him. And we haven't stepped in out in obedience and faith to see him work and provide. We need to do what God has instructed us to do, even if it doesn't make sense, because he has our best interest at heart. And we'll see him provide for us when God sees us put him above all else. Amy Carmichael, the old poet of the 19th century, said, the reason there is so much shallow living, much talk, but little obedience, is that so few people are prepared to be like the lone pine on the hilltop in the wind for God. Like so many of us are waiting for a crowd to be obedient with instead of saying, you know, even if no one else, if, if, the old hymn, if, if none follow, still I will follow. You know, I will take that stand for God even if I'm the only one. That's the conviction that God wants. Dallas Willard said, The Lord is my shepherd is written on many more tombstones than lives. 
Everybody wants that on their tombstone, but how many people are living that truth and that reality daily in their lives? The Lord is my shepherd. He calls the shots. He leads me. He guides me. I follow his lead. Huge. Some closing comments here. Tony Evans made this very interesting thought. He said, while Abraham was going through his trial and climbing up the mountain on one side, God had Abraham's solution, the ram, coming up the mountain on the other side. Friends, when you're going through the fire and when you're going through a challenge, you never know that in the midst of your obedience, God is timing the answer to your obedience to meet you and to provide in ways that are just mind-blowing, just mind-blowing. As a result of God's providential provision, Abraham named the place Jehovah-Jireh, the Lord will provide. He discovered something about Jehovah on that day that it would forever change his life. That's why verse 14 says, The Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord it will be provided. Historians tell us that to the best of our knowledge, the best of our records, the temple mount today is built on Mount Moriah. So for centuries and generations, as the Jews would give sacrifices to God, this was being fulfilled prophetically. On the mount of the Lord it will be provided. And ultimately, Jesus cut off those sacrifices at the cross when Jesus was the final sacrifice, the Lamb of God given for our sins. I want to close with this story, and I want to tie it together. After a serious car accident in Venezuela, Carlos Canejo, or Carnejo was pronounced dead at the scene. Officials released the body to the morgue, and a routine autopsy was ordered. But as soon as examiners began the autopsy, they realized something was gravely amiss. The body was bleeding. They quickly stitched up the wounds to stop the bleeding, which in turn jarred Carlos to consciousness. Carlos said, I awoke up because the pain was unbearable. Equally jarred awake was Carlos's wife, who came to the morgue to identify her husband's body and instead found him in the hallway alive. There was truth at work here, and the truth is dead people don't bleed. This is a sign of the living. Thought and practice in the Old Testament times revolved around a similar understanding, namely the life is in the blood. For in the ancient Hebrew, there was a general understanding that in our blood is the essence of what it means to be alive. There is life in the blood. There is energy and power. This notion of blood and its power can also be seen in the language of sacrifice and offering found throughout the Near Eastern culture. Just as it was understood that the force of life exists in the blood, there was a general understanding of the human need for the power of perfect blood, a need in our lives for atoning and cleansing. The blood of a living sacrifice made this possible temporarily, but God would provide a better way. When Christianity speaks of a Christ, of Christ as the Lamb of God, it's a description of the one whose blood cries out with enough life and power to reach every person, every sorrow, every shortfall, every evil. Jesus is the Lamb who comes to the slaughter, alive and aware, on his own accord, and with his blood covers us with life. There is life in the blood of Christ, whose entire life is self-giving love. There is power, and he has freely sacrificed all to bring it near. 
Scripture tells of a time when we will all bow before the slain lamb who stands very much alive, stands in victory, though bearing the scars of his own death. He is not dead and buried, but is calling a broken world to his wounded side, offering love and life, mercy and power, and blood poured out for you and for me. The takeaway today for me, I hope for you, is if trials and challenges and suffering signal to us not God's indifference and God's lack of love, but rather that he is at work and he is revealing himself to us in a deeper, more meaningful, more intimate way, then it's like, bring it on, bring it on. You know, nothing compares with that. I found this prayer that uh, I'll give the name at the end because I think it's more powerful, but this person prayed, disturb us, Lord, disturb us when we are too pleased with ourselves, when our dreams have come true because we have dreamed too little, when we arrive safely because we have sailed too close to the shore. Disturb us, Lord, with the abundance of things, when the abundance of things we possess We have lost our thirst for the waters of life. Having fallen in love with life, we have ceased to dream of eternity. And in our efforts to build a new earth, we have allowed our vision of the new heaven to dim. Disturb us, Lord, to dare more boldly, to venture on wider seas where storms will show your mastery. Where losing sight of land, we shall find the stars. We ask you to push back the horizons of our hope in order to push us into the future in your strength, your courage, your hope, and in your love. That was Sir Francis Drake, one of the great explorers. And he, he captures the, the point that, you know, we, we pray, God, make today easy. Take away the trials, the hardships, when we should be praying, God, help me to see you and everything. Help me to experience you more fully and to come out on the other side knowing you more intimately and and deeply. Jehovah Jireh, let's pray.